0: God, we thank you for an opportunity to gather and to study your word together and be encouraged and challenged by what it says. I pray that we would be humble enough to receive what your word says and be submitted to it. And I pray that uh, you would meet us here, that we might love you more through the process of studying your word. And so bear fruit in our hearts and our lives in that way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're, we're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and um, I'll read it for us, but before I do that, let me just uh, mention sort of maybe a, a clarification from last week. Bob called me, and I appreciated this, wanting to, to point out the fact that... Um, Cause we've been talking about like criminal acts within the body of christ and to some degree and i i do want it to be clear that uh our commitment to engage with conflict biblically does not excuse us from obeying the law of the civil government so for example um you know let's just say somebody in the church was to defraud somebody else and steal from them in some way shape or form if that's a criminal act then the police need to be involved in that process and the court does need to be involved that does not wash our hands of responsibility for also attempting to biblically deal with that conflict within the community of Christ so if it's criminal it's both and does that make sense okay we don't we don't get to neglect the law and deal with things in house when laws have been broken, but if it goes to, you know, a court, that doesn't mean that we are fr- excused from doing what we can to reconcile biblically. Okay. Um, I also want to... uh, So, like, maybe another example of that would just be, like, spousal abuse. Uh, You know, if if somebody has crossed a legal line, then the police need to be involved in that. We also might ask, why all the harsh judgments and sort of the lofty expectations for the community of God to be so different? I mean, we were talking about last week. This is some heavy stuff. These are some some strict ethics. Uh, This is uh you know uh, the word that often people use is like judgment or judgmentalism or, or things like that why 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 does it have to be like this? I just happen to be reading in my own uh devotional time in the book of Leviticus and I would love for you to turn there with me real quick to chapter 20. And this really stood out to me this week um, in thinking about our discussion regarding uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So it says here in Leviticus chapter 20 verses 22 to 26. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Okay? So in the old covenant, this separation was literal and physical. It was a nation, a place, it was a people that were clearly, literally very distinct from the other nations around them. And the consequence for failure to be uh, distinct and separated from the other nations on earth was death. If you go read Leviticus, the death sentence is used quite liberally throughout the pages of Leviticus. But in the New Covenant, this separation is spiritual And the consequence for failure is to be put out of the community. Do you see? So, because the the Christian community is not a piece of property on planet Earth. It is a people that belong to the kingdom of God spiritually, even as they live naturally or physically dispersed among all the peoples of Earth. And the consequence, instead of physical death for not being distinct, not living distinct, is that you get put out of the community. And that's that's meant to show to you that we are uh, pointing out your potential spiritual death, that you are now separated from the people that are supposed to be separated for the purposes of God. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want, I want this to be really clear because I, I think in the way that we do church in America, we have really lost the distinction uh, that God intends for his people and um, you know the way that I like to think about this is if you're a visitor to Maricopa Springs you are like a person who is sitting in on a family meeting we're very glad you're here but this is not for you you are an observer among the people of God Now, if at some point you choose to surrender your life to Jesus and become part of the family, you are welcome to do that. We encourage you to do that. We want you to do that. But until you make that step, this actually isn't for you. Um, It is for the people of God who are being called to live out this distinct lifestyle that their lives might be an act of worship to the God who has redeemed them. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, but when you flush it out a little bit, what does that mean application-wise? How is it not?
2: Yeah, in
1: the community, in the broader community, maybe, or is that, or is that what are or just... That... Well, I mean, if they're coming and doing everything that we do every single Sunday, oh, how, how do they know it's not for them, since we're not doing anything different? I mean, other than we're just saying it's not for you, right. we're just not going to hold accountable? Well, is, is well, I,
0: I would say in things like, yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. First of all, you know, let's say a gay couple walks through the door and they're like, no, we're not Christians, but we want to come here. It's like, fine, you can, you can come here on the day that you choose to, to, give yourself to Jesus though, we're going to insert the sexual ethic of Christianity into your relationship, and we're gonna tell you this is sin and it's wrong. I mean, we're still gonna tell them that sin. I mean, I did that a month ago. Um, We're gonna exclude them from things like uh, um, communion, baptism, obviously. Those are signs that you belong to the community. Um, I would say even something like potentially belonging to a small group, those things should be excluded to those who have a profession of faith. We wouldn't allow you to sign our community covenant, which means you also can't serve in many capacities in our church.
2: Can you not take communion if you are not a member?
0: We we would restrict communion to those who have given a credible profession of faith,
2: whether or not they're members. Yes. Well, you know, you know, not to beat this, but I mean, there are gay couples who consider themselves Christians. Um, what do you say to
0: them? Yeah, and I don't, want, I don't want to pick on that. I mean, look, this yeah, is, just, this is so, it's, it's really hard, and, um, and we've really just messed this up by, by sort of, by, by desiring to grow our churches and get as many people in as we possibly can, we've really lost this distinction. And I mean, that that's to your question. Like, it's so really hard.
1: Reform and, and say, well, why is sitting in on a home group not sitting in on a family meeting and observing yeah what and the sunday
0: thing is that's totally fair that's a really good question um and so we don't we can even just talk about like i i would guarantee you that there are people who come to maricopa springs at least semi-regularly couples who are not married living together, on
1: one yeah
0: that's a huge problem um and we should be addressing that um And we should be willing for people to be like, well, if that's the standard that your church has, then I'm going to go find
1: a different church. Well, then you got the leaven out of your loaf.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and to some degree, that's part of what I'm saying is like, I'm I'm never going to preach a... I'm going to preach a message of repentance and faith, right? I, I hope that my messages are evangelistic in nature because there will be people in the room who don't have sincere professions of faith. But that's not my primary audience. If you watch a lot of sermons today from bigger churches it's like the whole focus is how do we get people who are not Christians to keep coming back Um, and and what I'm saying is the gathering of the believers is for the believers Um, and they're supposed to be encouraged and inspired to go out and and take the gospel out
3: let's forget about them Um, if if there are um, uh, couples who are not married who are who are coming to church um, do we? The, do you and John have a process, right? and when I say, you know, that because you're the elders, do you have a process, a long time that, uh, like um, uh, Rick is saying, that we're going to get the leaven out of the lump? I mean, uh, what I mean is, do we sit down with them and say, hey, thanks for coming for three times? What's your purpose? Are you going to join?
0: Yeah, it, I'm, I'm torn on this because... I do want people to continue to hear the gospel. I mean, hey, me, we need me That's why I'm asking. Yeah, <laughs> we, I have heard stories of people who are like, I went to church for 20 years before God like opened my eyes and I realized I was not a Christian, right? So I'm not eager to like chase people out. No, but, but, but but that's it,
3: different than somebody going to church. I got that and everything. That's different than somebody living in sin and going to church.
0: So one
2: of that the that was us actually <laughs> to a certain extent because. I mean we were professing to be Christians but in, if you were to look inside our life, there were a lot of things that were wrong. right and as, I think that will open our eyes by uh, connecting with believers who we'll start talking into our life, and then things happen by the grace of God and now we have I think new desires yeah. and our lives speak for itself not only in the outside but you can ask our children and I would think they would say the things that Huge difference, you yeah. know, way that we used to be versus who we are now. Yeah, it was a process, unfortunately.
0: Right, and and that's part of the reason why like we want to be patient and slow with these kinds of things and not not be hasty. And you know, there is a sense even in which Jesus like invites his disciples to kind of come and follow him before he turns to them and says, "Who do you say that I am?" Right. So there. This is what's hard. I think where where we're moving towards is probably two things. Um, One is having a more defined uh, positional statement on our teaching. So our statement of faith, if you look at Maricopa Springs, is pretty vague. I like to say that it is inclusively Christian but exclusively Christian, meaning you'd have to be a Christian to affirm it, but you could – belong to a wide breadth of denominational or Christian backgrounds and say, I agree with this. But I think what frustrates people sometimes is because it's so uh, vague, I guess you could say, where, where it's just the essentials. Then sometimes when I get up and I'm like, this is our position on this issue, people are like, whoa, that's not in your statement of faith. Like, I, I'm i shocked to hear that out of your mouth, right? So we're, we're, we're considering developing a in addition to our statement of faith sort of a here's what you should expect from the mouths of our elders and whoever's preaching okay on things like um you know maybe eschatology or uh the sovereignty of god or (laughs) baptism whether it's believers baptism or infant those kinds of things that just aren't covered in our statement of faith yes sanctity sanctity. well that actually is in our (laughs) statement of faith um we said oh, dog's, going to heaven. dogs going to heaven, yeah and that becomes a thing too like I've got a buddy who's like his his church's statement of faith is like 35 pages long and so you know where do you sort of draw the line on some of that stuff uh, but the other one would be we're, we're, we're thinking through sort of revamping our membership process and part of that being that I don't think I'm, I'm beginning to think it shouldn't be exclusively up to the elders whether we affirm somebody's membership in our church I think if, if we let's say we've got three families that go through our membership process, why shouldn't we bring them in front of our members and say, because our community covenant says, you as a member are accepting responsibility for this person. And you're also willing to lay your life out before them for their uh, scrutiny and feedback, right? So doesn't it seem a little bit unfair that our elders are the ones that are like you're in? Maybe there should be a process whereby the membership of the church as a whole says, yeah, we accept these people into our fellowship. That means that we, we know them. We think that their, their profession of faith is legitimate. We're willing to accept responsibility for them. We're willing to lay down our lives for them.
3: Yeah.
4: Not to, not to get back to me, you, were, you were saying we, the reason why it's, it's not as exclusive in our church gathering is because we still want people to hear the gospel. Yeah, I mean, there's people that go to street corners and preach the gospel, and it, it's not like the gospel can't be heard. You know, we as members should be doing it. Should be giving. Yeah,
3: gospel, I agree. But, I agree. But
4: I'm saying, like, I I don't know that that would be a <coughs> they're not going to hear the gospel unless they're.
0: Yeah, I mean, just at some point this gets really tough because like you can't see somebody's heart. What you can do is you can see the fruit, and 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 that can give you like a a level of certainty, but. I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to, like, place a Gestapo at the door to be like, show okay. me your Christian yeah. card, and then yeah. you get yeah. in. and But actually, that's the way the early church did it.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they, they would gather for a corporate gathering, and then they would say, if you've not been baptized, you are dismissed, you must leave, and now we're going to take communion together among those who've been baptized.
2: Yeah, We, we as flawed members, are going to accept you, please accept us as flawed members. <clears throat> Basically, it's kind of a two-way street. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and we, could, we could also, you know, say something like, well, let's go back to the glory days of the church when they did X, Y, or Z. There are no glory days, right? Well, I mean, read 1 Corinthians, um, and you will see that there aren't really the glory days where everything was, was perfect. Um, the point I'm trying to make, and this was – I wasn't in, intending to spend this much time on it, but that's okay <laughs> – The point that I'm trying to make is that God's intention for his people is that they would be distinct. So the person who responds and says, well, it's really mean for a church to uh, excommunicate somebody. I don't think you've closely read the text well enough to see that God's intention is that his people would actually look different than the world. So if you are attending a church and you make a profession of faith, then you should expect that when you violate the ethics of the Christian way of life, the way of Jesus, that the church would say that's unacceptable and there should be some kind of consequence for that. At the very least, we should expect repentance, which means you are pursuing forgiveness, reconciliation, and a turning from that behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: One more comment, maybe just to press a little bit. Yeah. On the Corinthians, you know, there was no glory days. Yeah, there wasn't Paul setting those things right. The apostolic authority is being laid out. Churches are getting started he's setting things right, so I would think the trajectory was they start getting more and more in line. And then to the comment, like now we're saying the churches are kind of, you know, drifting away and they kind of all kind of a mess that you started the conversation with. It, it's a chance to reform, you know, like reformed, always reforming kind of idea. Yeah. So, you know, I don't want to just say, well, we can't go back to the glory days. Maybe we should. We should always, like, be reforming back to what we think is right, because instead rather than just saying, a and yeah, anything.
0: let me let me try and explain that a little bit more. I mean, look again. Read the letters to to the seven churches in Revelation. I mean, it's <laughs> it's uncommon that a church gets like a wholesale commendation from God. So we shouldn't be saying, "Let's go back to this period in history because they were doing it right." We should say, "What does the text say, and are we doing what the text says?" Um, because that's that's what we're ultimately called to do. And it's interesting that it's looked different in different periods of history. And, and I think in every period of history, you could find a church that's like, this church deserves commendation. And these ones deserve some rebuke. They should have been reforming.
3: And unfortunately, the text doesn't quite say anything about the way. That specifically that the church should respond should
0: be? Yeah, I mean a lot of times it is kind of vague, right? It doesn't say you must meet at 10 a.m. on right. Sunday morning, right? It doesn't say your church can't exceed X size or must be at least this many, well, at least two. But other than that, you know, it doesn't, there's some things where it's like there's a lot of room for freedom there.
1: But it does say for all the fornicators. <laughs> Out of your yeah, and
0: and that's what that's what I'm getting at. I mean, if if you don't understand this and you read First Corinthians chapter five in particular or chapter six, you're going to be like, "Wait, what? This seems really um, strict." Uh, and there's a sense in which it, it sort of should be. Okay, so um, I, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get to this more in a minute. We'll keep going. Okay, uh, let's pick up. I think we're gonna pick up in uh, verse nine. Um, Yeah, I I just had on here, God takes membership in his family very seriously. And therefore, the members of his family should take that seriously as well. Okay, so he says, or do you not know... Well, should I read? I should probably read the chapter. So I'm going to start back in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Uh, this This is why the expectation is there for believers to live like they are pursuing holiness because there has been a radical and fundamental change. Okay, so we already mentioned, do you not know, that Paul used that phrase six times. Uh, I think in a sense that's a little bit of a rhetorical question. Paul taught these people these things already. And so he's now surprised to find them not living in accordance with them. He's astounded that after all the time that he spent with them, they still have ignorance in these areas and immaturity in these areas. They should know. Um, and there are here, here's kind of one of the things I would I would have you understand. <clears throat> there are conditions to inheriting the kingdom of God. Um, I think we've tragically misrepresented the gospel call. <clears throat> So the gift of righteousness is free. That is true. But we have to treasure that gift, and we have to fight for that gift, and we have to care for that gift. Paul says at the end of this, you have been bought with a price. That's verse 20. So I, wanna, I want you to flip to Matthew 22 with me, and I want to read a parable that I think is, uh, relates here, that I think is kind of interesting. And I'll give you my interpretation of it. <laughs> Matthew 22. All right. It says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. That's the Jews, obviously, right? They were the ones initially invited to the wedding feast. The king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I think you could literally say that's a prophecy regarding Jerusalem in A.D. seventy. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. I think there's you see the inclusion of the Gentiles. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay, but when the king, so, so let me just say, there is the free offer of the gospel, right? Come, come into the kingdom of God, come receive all of the benefits of the favor of the king. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The way I read this is, the offer to come to the wedding feast did not include the requirement to wear a wedding garment. But certainly when you came in, if you're going to be at the wedding feast put on by the king, you were given the appropriate clothing to wear. And if you choose to then remain at the feast without your appropriate clothing, you get booted.
3: Does
0: that make sense? I mean, I think what it's getting at is the invitation to come is free, but once you are in, the expectation is that you will dress like you belong.
4: It's not be like like the call to the whole world versus the call to the elect. This uh, this is the call. This is a uh, you know an open call. You said all are welcome, but sounds like there's restrictions on the all part because this guy's at the wedding feast. No.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you could make that interpretive argument potentially. Um, I'm I'm more just saying like, you know, if you if you go to a wedding, you should dress the part.
2: I thought I read somewhere that when back then, when you did, if you did not have the appropriate clothing, it would be provided for you. Have you ever heard
0: anything like that? Um, well, I, I don't know. That wouldn't surprise me because most people didn't have you know, a closet full of clothes. They, they probably had, Something would be you know, a single change of clothing. But the way you
1: told it, you said you were yeah. given the wedding clothes.
0: I thought you understood yeah. that. Oh, yes, they parable Well, all I'm saying is is that bef- when they are invited, there's not a declaration of here are the expectations yeah. that you must agree to in order to enter. No,
3: that, right? this is a king. He got plenty yeah. of clothes. Right, right. He, he, <laughs> is not like he's short of? You know? Yeah, and,
0: and I mean, theologically, the righteousness that, that permits you to enter God's kingdom is a gift. It's given to you. It's not your. I, I want to go a
3: step further. Not only that, these weren't the earls and, uh, and, and, the, and the people of the citizens. Who may have had clothing, these are the vagabonds that are right on the 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 side of the road we assume have nothing, which is exactly how we're supposed to come into the uh, kingdom of God. Not carrying anything completely stripped, naked. Yes. So we have to be given clothes.
0: Amen. And I think the king's frustration is not that this man failed to have the clothes, but that though they were provided for him, he chose not to wear them.
1: Does
0: that make sense?
1: In Revelation, it says the wedding clothes were the righteous deed saints, which is what we're getting at. It's like you didn't yeah. just put on the clothes. You didn't count the cost. You didn't invite time to sell. You didn't Christ. Yeah. Don't, you're going to be killed.
0: Yeah, was, absolutely.
2: There was a certain expectation.
0: Yes, yeah. yes. And again, that's post-invitation. That's, okay. And, and and we, like, we have to understand the part of the reason for this is because this is a gift. Go back to the verses down in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And, and then skip to verse 11. And such were some of you. That's what you were. you were. You belonged to the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. You were among that crowd. And then God rescued you and he changed you and you became something different. And therefore, now we have a very high expectation for you. Because the Spirit of God is producing in you the fruit of righteousness. You abide in Christ, and he bears much fruit through you. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, so here's the yeah. clothing we put on. Romans 13, 14 says, uh, But put on the Lord Jesus uh, Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. Yeah.
0: That's great. Thank you for bringing that bringing that up. Um. Or uh, what's the other one? Isn't it um, Galatians 3, put on, therefore, as God's chosen? Um, Is it Galatians 3? I should have this memorized.
3: Both in Galatians and in uh, Ephesians, there's uh, put on and take off.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry. It is Colossians 3. Sorry. Yeah, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That's not coming from you. That is, yeah, the clothing that the king has given to you. Okay, um, I want to point out too that this is one of the one of what we would call or what I would call a vice list, but it is not exclusive. So you can't be like, well, I, you know, these aren't my sins. My sin is pride and it's not listed here, so I'm, I'm a shoe in you know. That's not how this works and one of the ways we know is that we can compare this list to a few other lists, ones like Galatians 5:19 or Revelation 21:8 and because we find different behaviors listed in the different lists, we know that this is example or a, a a sampling an example of some of the kinds of things but it's not exhaustive. Does that make sense? Okay. Um all right, moving on uh, to verse 11. I already was kind of hitting on this. It, it it confirms everything that we have said so far by making a big distinction between what was and what now is. So one of the reasons why I really don't like when somebody says, like, you know, I'm an alcoholic Christian. And you say, well, how long have you been sober? And they're like, well, 20 years. I'm like, you need to let go of your old identity as a An alcoholic and just call yourself a Christian like you are a redeemed child of the Most High God right or even the concept of something like you know I mean there's lots of different ways that people sort of mix their old identity enslaved to whatever sin it was with their now new identity in Christ and such were some of you you are not that any longer do you think that that's also
4: like you see a lot of that? You know, um, CRT stuff like I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black Christian before I am you know I'm yeah. black before I'm a Christian or I'm, I'm whatever it is.
0: Yeah, like, and we all know, fall into this just, temptation. I mean, just, I, yeah. a big one that I see in America is well, an American. American, right? <laughs> right. Uh, which kingdom do you really belong to? You belong first to the kingdom of God, and if the kingdom of America were to fall around you, you should be able to press on as if not much has changed. Um, that's. That's hard, but it's true.
2: Uh,
0: Or you know, I mean, even just an interesting thing is like, pay attention to how people introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Grady. I live in Maricopa. That's my identity, right? Or hi, I'm Grady. I'm a pastor. That's my identity. Or whatever it is, you know. Hi, I'm Grady. You know, I have four kids. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yeah, right? And I'm not necessarily suggesting that you go around and you do that everywhere. But think <coughs> about it yourself. As you introduce yourself to somebody, what do you immediately and most fundamentally connect your identity to? Because that's the one that it should be, right? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a beloved child of the Most High God.
1: You know? to, your, to your point, though, do you think that's kind of identifying ourselves as our past? I, I'm not a sinner anymore. I don't practice sin. Um you know what I mean so I kind of sure, I don't like saint. that when people say that too because what are you saying you sin like you're sinning all the time I don't, I don't sin anymore and I mean what
0: I mean by that is I don't practice sin I mean I'm yeah but I but I like think sin, but. yeah that, that's fair but I think what people are really getting at is like man I'm redeemed and I think throughout all eternity we will have a a memory of not not the particulars of sin but having been rescued out of it um you know, we won't sin any longer, but we'll remember that there was a time when we were defined by that. God haters. Let's do,
1: dude. I once was lost, but now. I'm found. Yeah, I like <laughs> it. Once that's was good. lost, now I'm found. All you gotta say is that I'm a born again Christian. You'll get talking. Well, that's redundant.
3: I understand. I guess the conversation going. What do you mean born again? Right. Uh,
0: yeah. Again, just, just think about you know the way that you think about yourself. Um, uh. Okay, so this is why Paul has, again, the high expectations, because these people have been changed. Um, Sort of an example of this, when I'm doing marriage counseling and I'm dealing with a marriage that's really a mess, I, I want to remind people, like, look, if you want to restore your marriage and do that hard work, what I'm actually inviting you into is not to go back to that marriage. Let's bury that thing. It was a mess and, and now by God's grace, he can do a resurrection kind of work in your marriage. And I want you to think about how beautiful it could be, not how crappy it used to be, right? Um, I think that's a little bit of an illustration. A new marriage sort of under, not sort of, but under the direction of Jesus Christ. And so let's apply biblical marriage principles to your marriage and let's watch God bear great fruit in your marriage through that process. Um, the old has gone, the new has come, right? So 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. That's powerful. If it was just a work of you, then we would not have high expectations. We would have very low expectations. But it's not. It is a work of God. Um, okay. So if we look here at uh, verse 11. We've got these phrases, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. My question for you would be, do you think that those are three totally distinct things? Or do you think that Paul is just cycling through sort of an amalgamation of the reality of Christ redeeming us? They say
1: they're separate things, but instantaneous
0: things, they happen. Okay. Calvin disagrees with you. <laughs> uh, he would just say that we're looking at one thing, just looking at it from different sides. I don't think it matters all that much. Um, and certainly we can go to other places and say these are actually distinct things. Um, yeah, the
3: sanctified one is tough to accept as an immediate and complete.
0: Yeah, so I was it, going to get I mean,
3: it's, it's, not that, it's not that it's impossible. It's just tough.
0: I was going to get into that, too, because look at the grammar around sanctified. You were. You were sanctified. So give, give the typical definition of sanctification. Anybody, can anybody give it? What's that?
4: ongoing process.
0: Yeah, it is the process of being made holy or the process of growing in holiness. So right? it seems like Paul and the Holy
3: Spirit got this wrong.
1: Yeah, there's no biblical basis to say it's an ongoing process. That's a, that's something that Christians talk about. You can't find that in the Bible. Sanctified means set apart. Like, and this is how inanimate objects can be sanctified in the temple to be to be used for God. There's no there's no well glory to glory. You could say you know I'm being changed from you know glory to glory or you know in the image of Christ. But that that concept's there, but sanctification is not using the way.
0: Okay, but that so when you encounter a thing like this where you know traditionally or historically this is like the primary view it is worth asking the question why why is that right um and I would say the reason actually is because of the way that the Greek tense is here and this is a little bit complicated but stick with me because um, because I, I think it's both and I don't think it's either or right you are sanctified at the moment you place your faith in Christ You are set apart for the purposes of God, for redemption. And yet we are supposed to grow in grace. That's a a biblical command, right? And to put off and put on, that's a process. But what we're dealing with here, at least in these verses, um, is what's called an aorist passive. And it's tricky to translate into English. English doesn't have something like this. Uh, we translate it past tense. You were sanctified. But in fact, the aorist only tells us what happened at a point of time in the past. It doesn't give us any indication of whether we're discussing an action that is completed at that point in time or that is ongoing. This is you, You're glorified. So
4: and you're not glorified. We'll get our glorified bodies. I mean, that's a, It's speaking of a, like at now
0: and and. I didn't look up the places where glorified to see what tense is used. That would be interesting. Um, what I'm what I'm getting at here is that it's more than it's more than possible because of this aorist tense, that um, that what Paul has in mind is an action that occurred at the moment you placed your faith in god but is also continuing into the present and even into the future
2: yeah yeah i was reading uh, i was looking at the eastern orthodox church and they have is, is divination and sanctification similar or the same because they they kind of look at sanctification uh, like they're, they're not really into justification by faith you are you know we are we we are Justified and therefore we are being sanctified, rather than we are being sanctified so we can be justified. They, they have a kind of flip that you have to be sanctified before being saved. Mm. That was kind of what I was looking at.
0: Yeah, and I would say that if you go that route, you're really dealing with like a works righteousness because yes. your justification right. is dependent right. upon your prior sanctification. Right. And I would say, no, because you've been justified, it's guaranteed God will bring about the end, excuse me, the end result of sanctification, which would then be glorification,
2: right?
0: You're sanctified because you're saved, not saved because you are sanctified. So this, this uh, concept, actually, we already encountered it in 1 Corinthians. If you want to go back to chapter 1. So this is interesting because in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now here we have a different verb tense. This is actually a perfect passive participle. So perfect means completed. It's done. Paul has the totality of your sanctification already done and completed in mind here but a participle is an ing word so like walking so it's sort of like he is saying rather than i walked into the grocery store i was walking to the grocery store right so in a sense he's 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 almost doing the same thing again because he's got the perfect tense which is completed but then he's got the participle idea with ongoing, which is actually, although it's a totally different grammar, it's sort of similar to the aorist passive that we inc- encounter in chapter 6. I don't know, is this helpful or is this just super confusing? Well, I
1: think if you look at the word justified one, that's more easy to understand. Yes. I mean, you're saying our justification technically is a future thing when we stand for the judgment seat of Christ but we're also already justified, justified. in Christ yeah. so it's not really like I'm being more justified as a process of going along it's, it's saying it's open because it's now and it's yeah. not ultimately ending, but nothing's changing with my justification in the process of, yeah and again justification again. I would say in the term that I'm going to use it and I'm going to try to argue against is like it's not an ongoing process there is a a, a sense of that but it's not called
0: yeah, and, and uh, again, contextually, if you look at what Paul's doing here, he's saying you you will not act that way any longer because this is true. You've been sanctified, you've been washed, you've been justified. Therefore, this is the kind of life that should flow from who you are.
1: In the same way the vessels in the temple were set apart, to yeah. not
3: be used for eating and drinking, but for only the things of the Lord. Right. That's how our bodies are yeah. set apart. for. It. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah uh, Hebrews kind of clarifies what you're talking about. okay uh, Hebrews uh, 10 and uh 4 uh, I mean 10 10 and then 10 14 10 10 says and by the will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all yeah and then just three verses later at 14 it says for by a single offering he has perfected all those uh, for all time all right. those who are being Sanctify. right. So you got both, both. right in that very yeah. small space in Hebrews. Yeah, that it's saying that, like Rick said, it's complete, it's done. But then it sounds like tomorrow I need it again. Right. So sanctification, or is there a are some
1: that are still being sanctified. God's not done with sanctifying people yet. Would be a, an option. And the reason I, I, I go this route and I say this is because look, you got people will say, well, you're just you know the reason why you're obeying Christ is you're just more sanctified. You're more further along in your sanctification process. And I say, no, you everyone's supposed to dice up, and we're all held to the same standards, yeah. regardless of where we are in our sanctification. And I see that as a huge issue when people use the word like that, like, well, you're just broken from your sanctification. No? Yeah.
3: We all held to the same
0: standard. Yeah, and we all have the same resource, which is it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit right, which is a divine resource, not a human resource, right? If it was dependent on us, then we might say, yeah, he's kind of an undisciplined guy. He kind of, you know, he, he, he struggles with things. And, like, look, we, we do. We want to give people grace because God is gracious. But, um, you know, I'm going to, we're, we're teaching, or I'm teaching on um, Genesis 4 and 5 this morning after class here, and we're going to look at Enoch who it says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. 365 years is how old Enoch was. And uh, and somehow without the Holy Spirit, he walked with God in such a manner that God was so pleased by his life that he took him. That's incredible. Yes. And for 365 years, right? Like I'm gonna say, Christian, if you think you are weary of trying to pursue holiness, look at Enoch who did it for that period of time <laughs> without the resource that you have with the Spirit. That's pretty yeah, amazing. He was never amazing. married, so... <laughs> what are you talking about? It says he, has, he had kids. Sure. Okay, sure. I got it. Sure. You're just playing around. Okay. It um, was
1: in the days of uh, when the men were exceedingly wicked, right? Yeah. Well, it's
0: weird because before that it says, and in those days men began to call on the, the name of the Lord. And then shortly after that it says there was rampant wickedness. So like somewhere in there yeah. things kind of broke down. Of Yeah, theophany would be the right word, or Christophany.
2: Like Melchizedek.
0: Melchizedek, right. Or I'm just
2: thinking.
0: Yeah, maybe. I don't know that I would go that far, but it's certainly an inspiration for us, right? Um, Okay, Uh, let's move on. Um, All right, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Sorry, we're back in 1 Corinthians 6. So glorify God in your body. Um, in case I don't get to say it or get to it because we run out of time, that, that's the application right there at the end. So glorify God in your body. Um, so the, the, the question for the Christian is never, what can I get away with? The, que- the question for the Christian is always, what brings glory to God? Right? If, you, if you are asking yourself, like what's the bare minimum I can give to God and he will still accept me? You are asking fundamentally the wrong question. The question that you should always be asking is, does this honor the God who loves me, who redeemed me, who gave his son for me? Does this glorify the one who is glorious? Does it reflect well upon his name that I bear on my heart in my life um, because the truth is as as it like let's take somebody who truly is converted you can get away with anything you can God is gracious like he he will forgive you but you're doing it wrong like you I, you've just fundamentally misunderstood the relationship um, and I'm I'm gonna mention, I'm gonna get to that in my sermon. I don't wanna steal all my stuff from my sermon. So you're just gonna have to wait. But <laughs> but like what would it look like to live a life like Enoch? Right? Where one day God shows up and he's like, Come on, I'm ready for you. Let's do this. Um versus like the way sin works, which is it it it, it entices and then you do it and then you you just don't, you're never satisfied by it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and it's part about the evangelistic fans uh, of talking about you gain heaven instead of saying a life yeah. not in bondage to sin. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: And that should be the gospel message, right? Not just that like, you can die and go to heaven, um, but rather that, yeah, you don't have to continue to be a slave mm-hmm. to unrighteousness. Um, okay, so uh, we've got this – This I, I don't know what your translation does, but I think it is appropriate for the ESV to put some quotes in here. One of the things that you should understand about Greek is that um, at this point in time, there were no punctuation marks, so there, there are no quotes in the manuscripts that we have. Um, in addition to that, the oldest manuscripts are all what we would call – Uh, like majuscules so they're uppercase and there's not even spacing so part of interpretation is like where grammatically does this sentence or this thought end and so if if your Bible is putting quotes in here that's an interpretive decision actually anytime the Bible puts even a period or a question mark or a comma that's an interpretive decision um, so that's kind of interesting. Maybe one of the reasons why it's helpful to read a couple different translations. So, but I do think it's appropriate here. I think what we have is Paul responding to uh, questions or maybe phrases that the Corinthians have sort of tossed his way. Um, you know, maybe you think of the verse that says, um, well, I, I have it written down here, Titus 1, 15 through 16. To the pure, all things are pure. Right. So maybe the, the, the people in Corinth are saying back to Paul, well, I can go sleep with a prostitute because I'm pure. And to the pure, all things are pure. And therefore, this is an act of, you know, worship to God. And Paul's responding, I think, to that saying, look, all things are lawful in a sense. And, um, you know, he says, but not all things are helpful. Uh, think about peter and god says to him look you know the the sheet comes down from heaven with all these unclean animals on it and god says rise peter kill and eat right what was formerly impure is now pure um but i think they're taking this idea and they're 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 abusing it they're misusing it and paul's trying to bring some correction here the law of christ is a law of freedom that's true we are free from slavery to sin we are liberated, but we are liberated to please God in everything that we do. Not to abuse our freedom. Um, I should have written it down, but what, what is the verse? Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Brothers, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Does anybody know that reference? Yeah, it is, right? Is it, is it Romans? Let me cheat and look it up. I'm surprised that I didn't write this down, actually. Oh, I did write it down. Galatians five, thirteen through 14. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or First Peter two sixteen, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. So, or, or um, yeah. So I think the the, the the church in Corinth has sort of misunderstood here that uh, freedom that God gives us is not a license to sin. It is freedom from bondage to sin so that we might live to righteousness. Okay, so that, that verse that I mentioned, Titus 1, 15 through 16, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So to the pure, all things are pure. That's not an endorsement of sin. As if you can do evil but call yourself pure and therefore the evil that you do is purified by that. That's not what it means. Um, I think we have to think very carefully here. I think what Paul is getting at in this passage in Titus is that to the pure, everything that they do is pure because they are doing pure things. Does that make sense? It, it, you're, you're almost like, well, that's overly simple. Yes, it is. Um, the purity of their heart makes them desire pure things and act on those pure things. Versus the corruption of the heart that makes the person desire evil things and act in evil ways. Does that make sense? I'll, be, I'll put it another way. It's not that their evil desires somehow become pure, but that they cease to desire evil. To the pure, all things are pure.
3: Psalm 37, uh, verse 4 and (coughs) 5. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust him, and he will act. So that's a reverse. So if you delight yourself in the Lord, there's absolutely nothing that you will delight in that will not be the desire of your heart that will be pure. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind that people
0: quote a lot is like Jeremiah 29, 11, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. But they stop there and they, they they forget to keep going where it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So the assumption is, that the prospering that you will have is that you will find God and you will be satisfied in him. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, all right. Uh, So I have written down here, the appropriate standard then is not that Christians will say, I justify my sin by pointing to God's grace, but rather I have been given grace And therefore I strive for holiness. Paul says something like that in Romans 6, right? Should we, wherever there's sin, there's more grace. What should we go on sinning so that there will be more and more grace? He says, by no means. And the reason is because you are dead to sin. Therefore, live as one who is actually free. So don't justify your sin by pointing to grace. Rather, because you've been given grace, Pursue holiness. All right, 15 through 20. I think we got a few more minutes. Oh, we have no minutes. Two minutes. Um, I'll just give you this sort of theological idea that uh, the Christian view of the person is that we are a psychosomatic unity, okay? Uh, psyche is the Greek word for soul or suke, and soma is the Greek word for body. So... Um, You know the way the Greeks viewed the world and the Romans viewed the world is that the the body is evil the soul is trapped in the body this is why they would burn people you see this still in like Eastern cultures they think the soul is good the immaterial is good but the material is evil and so when you die you have to burn the body to set the soul free Christians deny that we believe that actually even though this world is fallen that it is good. God made it fundamentally good. It's it's been corrupted by man's sin, so we would say that we are a psychosomatic unity. You are both a body and a soul, and both of those things are good. But what you do with one has potential to corrupt the other. If Dwight were here, I would ask him to share about his dad. He he tells this story that uh, his dad had like real bad asthma. And then at the end of his life, his dad slipped into, um, I wanna say it was like dementia or something like that. And, uh, and his asthma went away. Isn't that crazy? So did he have asthma or was his asthma, uh, his bodily condition a, a result of something psychological? And this goes both ways, right? If your body is ailing, your spirit is usually discouraged or is often tempted to discouragement. And vice versa. If you are chronically thinking about the misery of your life, it will lead to a bodily breakdown over time. So I think that's kind of the idea we're getting here is like don't think that you can unite your body to a prostitute and it has no spiritual effect on you. That's not how this works. You are a psychosomatic unity and what you do to your body affects your soul and vice versa. If this is why we're told set your mind on things above not on things that are on earth because setting the mind will encourage the body to do the things that accord with godliness it goes both ways that makes with sense with
1: that uh, argument though then food would be the same though like if you put food in your body it's going to affect your your spirit because it's affecting your body you know what i mean i would agree with that do you disagree with that well i, I mean, i'm just saying i think paul the point paul's making is more of like a spiritual thing with sex and, and marriage um, being a spiritual picture versus food is just, you know, so in other words, God made the body to eat. It's okay to eat, eat whatever you want, like, kind of thing. God made sex, but in the context of a certain thing, and it has a spiritual image. So therefore, when you connect, sure. I, think, I think it's deeper than just sex, you know.
0: Say it again. Say what you're saying again. I'm not sure I'm understanding.
1: Yeah, I'm saying like the, the just saying that everything psychosomatic, so like everything you do with your spirit and your body are, are combined. That doesn't separate the fact that having sex with your wife would be affecting your body too. In, the, in other words, there's a distinction. I think that's deeper than just everything affects your your soul. He's making the, the distinction is more sex outside of marriage is a deeper thing than everything affecting your soul.
0: Yes, I would agree with that. I'm not. I'm not suggesting that they're all on the same plane. You know, like as if you know walking down the street is is going to have some deeply spiritual effect. There, there are certainly um, layers here. I'm just getting at this idea that like Paul doesn't think that that you can do these things in your body and it's not going to negatively affect your soul. Um, and and what what he's really getting at, even more than this, is the sacred nature of the marriage union Um, and that in particular I mean I I think the way he says it here he says um, in verse 18 every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body there's something really uniquely beautiful and divine about sex in the context of the marriage relationship um, and I think that that's what Paul is kind of getting at. That it, this is a particularly defiling thing for a person to engage in. And it's a particularly beautiful part of God's
3: creation that shouldn't be defiled. And sex in other manners is the only thing, not the only, but one of the only other things that he calls an abomination. <clears throat> Paul calls? An not abomination. Paul, the, the, the word is called, calls uh, homosexuality and uh, a, an abomination. Whereas... You, but you're
0: talking about in the Old Testament?
3: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I believe it's even in the New, but I'll have to look that up. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's in Romans. Um, uh, but so, and, and, and the, um, bringing up spirits is also an abomination. But I'm just saying it's a very, very thin uh, list. And so it's a, it's a sin that's above other sins. If we it
0: <clears throat> that way. Yeah, that that requires some nuance too, because um, you know, we would say that in the eyes of God, like all sin is, is bad. Well, all it takes but,
3: is any sin to send you to hell. Right. right.
0: But there are clearly when you read the Old Testament law, there are clearly, you know, different levels yeah, being of being angry
3: and murder are two different things. Right. <laughs> right. Right.
0: All right, I think we'll, we'll kind of end there with this idea, so glorify God in your body is how he ends, right? And, of course, he's not saying, and therefore you don't have to glorify him in your soul or your mind or your heart. The assumption is that if you're glorifying God in your body that you're also – like it, this is not an exclusionary statement. It's an inclusionary statement. <clears throat> All right, let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would help us to do just that, to glorify you in our bodies, but also in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in our relationships with one another, um, in the way that we seek you and pursue you. And we thank you that you have given us the resources that we need through the Spirit dwelling in us. I, I thank you for what Jesus taught us when he said, Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. I thank you that the bearing of fruit is not ultimately uh, on us, but that we simply need to cling to Christ and that by grace you will bear fruit. We thank you that we have been washed, that we have been sanctified, that we've been justified. And I
3: pray that we would live like those things are true. In Christ's name, amen.